Welcome to the Art in the 48 podcast, your Arizona arts connection. I'm composer Craig Baumler, and today we dive into the origin of Phoenix's black theater troupe and have a chat with its executive director, David Hemphill. Well, it was actually founded as a way to alleviate some of the riots and etc. around the country. They were eventually coming towards Phoenix. So that's one of the reasons that they're still around is because of the foundation that was set by the Black Arts Civil Rights Movement. The confrontation was not created by the police. The confrontation was created by the people who charged the police. The year was 1970, and race riots were sweeping across the United States in response to police brutality, segregation, and racially motivated crimes. The assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968 was still a fresh memory, as was the full week of rioting that followed in over 100 U.S. cities. The Asbury Park race riots of July 1970 shifted the focus of the entire nation onto New Jersey, and one particular woman in Phoenix, Arizona, did not want her city to be next. Helen Catherine Mason was the great-granddaughter of the woman who was considered to be the first African-American woman in the state of Arizona. She herself was born in 1912 and grew up in Phoenix, then a segregated city. After graduating high school, Mason moved to Los Angeles where she worked as a cosmetologist. During World War II, she returned to her hometown and started a family. Her passion for her local community led Mason to go back to school to earn a bachelor's degree in recreation from Arizona State University, and she graduated with distinction in 1958. Mason worked hard at her job at the Parks and Recreation Department with the City of Phoenix. She was the first African-American woman to become a manager in her department, and her love for the community she represented was evident in the programs she developed, especially those for young people. During the unrest of the Civil Rights era, Mason believed that it was important to serve the communities of color in Phoenix who were watching the violence and discrimination across the country and experiencing racial injustices in their own lives. One such community program she developed began as a drop-in session at the Sidney P. Osborne Boarding House, where residents could share their experiences and voice their concerns regarding the racial injustice happening in Phoenix. But there was a catch. They couldn't just talk. They had to convey their feelings in song, dance, or with a poem. The program was for residents of all ages, but it was Mason's hope that it could provide an alternative to violence, especially for young people. She was convinced that theater produced by and for black people would be a vital outlet for the community. Mason went on to win a National Endowment for the Humanities Award, which she used to establish the Black Theater Troupe in 1970. When the Arizona Women's Hall of Fame inducted Mason into its ranks in 2015, they described the Black Theater Troupe as an oasis for showcasing cultural diversity through the performing arts and giving a voice to the rich legacy that comes from people of color. Although the African-American community in Phoenix was small at the time, there were many non-African-American residents moving to the city from all over the nation who supported the Black Theater Troupe during its early years. 
The troupe attributes much of its early success to these allies. Another powerful influence was the black arts civil rights movement that started in New York in 1967. Helen Mason had connections to this program, and members of the movement came to Phoenix to guide and support the black theater troupe, laying a foundation that has lasted for over half a century. The Black Theater Troupe had no permanent residence until 1981 when they purchased a building on East Portland. Over the next 25 years, the troupe continued to grow, and in the last bond election in 2006, the city voted to fund the construction of a brand new facility for the company. Even with the $2.8 million given by the city, the theater still had to fundraise and spent many years working to acquire the necessary equipment for such a facility. Finally, in 2013, the Helen K. Mason Performing Arts Center opened its doors. Went to the gypsy to get my fortune told. She said, you're bad luck, honey, with your damn black soul. I'm gonna be somebody very dog to get my loving all the time. Yeah, get my loving all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Phoenix's Black Theater Troupe is one of the oldest live black theater companies in the United States. In 2013, they received an award for longevity from the National Black Theater Festival. During its tenure, the company has primarily focused on amplifying black voices and experiences. But it also makes room for voices of other races and minority groups, acknowledging how African-American culture has been influenced by many other cultures. Theater critic Kyle Lawson wrote that Helen Mason's mission was discovering how things could come together not how they could be ripped further apart. To this day, the Black Theater Troupe remains true to the idea of sharing universal experiences through theater and drawing attention to the ongoing fight for equality. We invite you to interact with us on social media, leave us feedback on the podcast, or tell the community about a local arts event you enjoyed. Connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Arizona PBS, and we may give you a shout out on the show. Recently, I had the pleasure of sitting down with the Black Theater Troupe's executive director, David Hemphill, to chat about the troupe, its history, and how things are going now. David is beginning his 28th season with the Black Theater Troupe in August, and he is still as enthusiastic about this company now as he was in his first season. So, David, what is your theatrical background? How did you come to be involved with this theater? You know, move from a perhaps a performer, or were you always an administrator? I, I know I've gotten to work with you in Christmas Carol, and uh, you played a magnificent Fezziwig. <laughs> uh, but I was wondering if that was, uh, you know, where you started, or? Well, you know, I did start out wanting to uh, be a performer, so to say. I had always enjoyed it as a younger person. I got enthralled with it, so to say, because I had a speech impediment when I was younger, and my mother thought that that was the best way for uh, me to overcome my uh, speech impediment was to help uh, get me into some drama classes and that sort of thing with Jane Keeler. It was, that was my first teacher, Miss Jane Keeler. So that's how it started. And then I began to look upon it as, as exactly what it had been for me, rather therapeutic. 
so I said, well, maybe I could make a career of it. But then I realized that it was most enjoyable to me and most relevant in my life when it was used as an outlet, as a release, so to say. So I've always uh, remained working in business and finance, and um, that has been my avocation, as they say. And it's always been fun like that, but that's how I started out, wanting to sing and dance. Well, then we need wonderful business people who also have an artistic sensibility. That is often not the case. Uh, You'll have uh, business people running a company without the artistic vision. And then uh, I've seen them come to loggerheads sometimes with the artistic directors. You have to have head and you have to have heart. What factors play into your decisions about what shows you choose to do? When we select a show or a production for our season, what we have to do is always remember that we want to try to be able to show the community that our productions are universal. In the beginning, they were strictly activists, strictly thought-provoking, strictly (laughs) upsetting and et cetera like that to drive the point home, to open people's eyes. And and that may be happening even now today. You know, it it needs to, it's come back around to being that. Yes, and that's one of the reasons that the, um, that we were very, very instrumental in being able to help other younger theaters around the country realize uh, what they could do. With the advent of George Floyd and all of the things that were going on in the country in reference to the African-American population, we were able to show younger companies that it's come full circle. That's how we started. We started because there was so much unrest and dissatisfaction among one segment of the population um, that we were able to step in and make a difference. So just like you said, that's very right. It's come full circle. And I think that's why the African-American theaters like ours, I think that's why they're always going to be relevant and always have a place within the American arts community is because history has a tendency to repeat itself. And if um, it continues to do so, where organizations like ours are always there to help provoke thought, help initiate conversation, and most importantly, help people remember. Do you think that um, there was a kind of complacency that set in between, say, 1970 and maybe three years ago? There had been much said in the news about we don't have racism anymore. And, you know, then there was and I think it was because of a kind of complacency or because everything was kind of buried or had settled down a bit. And then, of course, with George Floyd, it was like lancing a boil that had always been there. And do you feel like this complacency is now yielding new fruits since we've come out of it now, since there's a much bigger awareness? Yes. And a much bigger anger by some for having come out of it. That's a very good point. It's an excellent point. It's always been there. But as you said, the degree and the emphasis of complacency that has permeated the country in terms of racial aspects and et cetera, that complacency led to everyone thinking, oh, just like Obama said, it's a post-racial society, when all the while those underpinnings are still there boiling under the surface. So that is one of the problems of becoming complacent. That's why organizations like ours have to continue 
to provoke thought and shake people up, so to say, is to let people know it's not all right yet. It took a long time for the African-American community and the African-American arts community to get to where we are now. The work is still not done, so you can't become complacent. You can't think that you'll be as supported as some other groups, some non-African-American groups. You can't think that you don't have to work a little harder. So um, that complacency is very, 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 very detrimental. Well, and, you know, as you were talking about to, to shake people up a bit, one of the reasons that arts might be continually coming under the microscope and being cut from schools is because people don't like to be shaken up a bit. That's right. And then what the arts organizations like Phoenix Theater and Black Theater Troupe and, you know, everybody else, is, they've had to really take on the idea of arts education yes. by all their outreaches. Yes, that's very, very important. David, one of the things I remember, um, and I, I did want to ask about this relative to your company, back in the 90s, I saw the Nick Heitner production of Carousel, and that was with Audra McDonald mm-hmm. playing Carrie, Carrie Snow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, naturally, as a, a white guy growing up in South Texas, seeing something like that, it opened my eyes mm-hmm. in ways I could never imagine. And I was like, well, this is why we have theater. Yes. Does black theater also do color conscious casting? Or as a black theater, is it unusual? Maybe do you cast a white person or an Asian person in there? Or do you tell stories that are other than African-American stories? Well, I think in terms of colorblind casting and color conscious casting, I think that that is more exciting to white audiences and white theaters than it would be to African-American theaters because if your theater or your company or your production has always been the same in terms of who's on stage and what's on stage, when you insert something that's not in their regular norm or in their usual picture, that becomes very, very exciting. Not to mention that it's a good opportunity for the artists to be able to to show themselves and show that they can be, um, that they have good experience and training, etc. So I think that that, that type of casting um, is very, very, uh, very, very important and very, very necessary in terms of white theaters. Now, in terms of African-American theaters, one of the things that, um, as I mentioned earlier, is the African-American experience has been touched by many, many other experiences. So we don't have to make a conscious decision to cast a non-African-American in a role that was traditionally African-American. Most of the time, it wouldn't work. Um, you know, can you? Yeah, yeah, no, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, most of the time, most of the time it wouldn't work. So what we do is to show that just what you said, that the real world, the, the look of the real world, what we do is we try to find pieces that reflect that automatically. People don't realize or remember that during slavery, it was important and mandatory, so to say, that slaves took on the religion of their owners. So we did a play um, that was called The Whipping Man, and it was about a plantation owner that had, um, and all of his slaves had converted, were Jewish. So they all celebrated Passover, they, the um, African Americans, the slaves, and etc. They were sincerely appreciative of the Jewish religion. So that kind of thing is 
easy for us to show because it's true. And just like you said, it's very, very important for people to see the world as it really is on stage. And that's why um, all of our productions, we hope, are universal productions. It would have been very, very shocking in past years on Broadway, so to say, to see a, um, like the, the, there was a play, The Owl and the Pussycat. And the shocking aspect of that play was an interracial relationship on stage. What was the actress's name? Um, Diane Carroll. Yes. It was Diane Carroll and um, Peter C. I forgot the other actor's name. But that was shocking, almost as shocking as Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yes. But the more companies and artistic individuals, the more they resist having to please or or placate one section of the population, the more expressive and the more exciting uh, their art will be. Well, so let's go to the uh, musical that you're getting ready to have come up, Ain't Misbehavin'. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell us about that? Well, it's it, difficult to put on a musical. I know for one thing, all the forces have to be much larger and yes. budgets as well. Yep. Well, the first thing is you have to say it like that, Ain't Misbehavin'. So, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's a big challenge because not only is are musicals more expensive, but there's always been a segment of the African-American theater community that has been against singing and dancing, which is very, very important in terms of the entertainment factor. That's why it's important. But a lot of companies in the past and a lot of companies in the recent past believe that the African-American theatrical platform should be used to provoke and expose people to things of equality and, and not make them remember, you know, all of those things like that. But in terms of Ain't Misbehaving, it's just good music that was universal in its appeal. Everybody loved Fats Waller's music. and um, Still do. Still do love Fats Waller's music. And um, Honeysuckle Rose is a, you know, it's a classic song. So this, this show is, you know, very, very important in terms of our being able to uplift the community, so to say, after the long drawn out hiatus of being under the pandemic. They need a little laughter. They need a little a little song and dance and etc. So that's why we purposely programmed that show at this time in the season. Well, that's fantastic, David. Well, I'm very eager to see that production. It's going to be great. Um, well, thank you so much for being with us today. It is uh, wonderful to see you after all these years, and all I'm so glad years. you... You, you continue to thrive and build and re-envision and create. It's, it's, it's truly wonderful to see you. I'm very, very grateful that you thought about us. I mean, it's one thing to want to see a production or, or that sort of thing, but when you want to connect with an old friend, that is even more exciting. So we're very, very grateful to you, Craig, for inviting us in for this. For more information about upcoming productions from the Black Theater Troupe, please visit blacktheatertroupe.org. We invite your feedback on this podcast. Please connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, where we will be keeping you up to date on your local Arizona arts events. 
The Art in the 48 podcast is a production of Arizona PBS. I'm Craig Baumler. Please join us again for the Art in the 48 podcast, your Arizona arts connection.